This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we are now uh, 10 days past the election. Joe Biden is going to seize 306 electoral votes, get the most votes in presidential campaign history, have a bigger popular vote margin than Barack Obama had in 2012, and one of the biggest in recent times. So really a stellar outcome. I know it looked closer on election night uh, than where we are today. But uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and their campaign team deserve enormous credit for overcoming strong Trump turnout. Um, stronger support uh, amongst Trump, amongst different demographics, uh, Latino voters in some pockets, Trump's margins in the rural areas maintained, in some blue-collar areas he was able to maintain, uh, and again, he drove strong turnout. So I uh, don't have much wind-up today. By the way, for those of you, though, worried about this bullshit about a coup or, uh, I mean, listen, it's appalling. It's reprehensible. It's historically irresponsible to see Trump and all of his weak, sniveling enablers in the U.S. Senate and in his cabinet uh, play along with the farce that somehow Trump might have won the election. It's horrifying. And if it sets a new standard, I'm not sure our country will survive, uh, you know, three or four more of these. But at the end of the day, Joe Biden's going to be our president. He will take the oath of office. He will build a great team. He announced a great chief of staff, Ron Klain, this week, uh, and he will help us rebuild this country. Um, but I want to spend time today with a woman who led this effort. Um, she's been on this podcast before, um, and I know you all learned from her back then. She was on most recently back when she started running Joe Biden's campaign in the spring, just as the pandemic really began to intensify. But she has done heroic work. The country and the world owes her a debt of gratitude, and I really want to turn the mic over to her so we can learn from her how Joe Biden won this campaign, really, in such dominating fashion. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jen O'Malley Dillon. Jen O'Malley Dillon, welcome back to Campaign HQ. Thanks, Fluff. Glad to be here. Well, you now join uh, the list of successful presidential campaign managers. You're the second woman to lead such an effort, first Democrat. You're the only one of that club to ever do it during a pandemic. You're the only one to do it running a largely virtual campaign. You're the only one to do it where you had basically state-sponsored voter suppression the entire time. So, you know, for my, uh, you know, reading of history, uh, you won the most successful uh, campaign in the history of America, and you did it under the most challenging circumstances. So a grateful world thanks you. Thank you. Well, I am um, glad to be here and so grateful myself uh, to have President-elect Biden and a Vice President-elect Harris. Um, you know, I couldn't imagine, honestly, better leaders to take us forward in this, you know, time of, of crisis. And, and the campaign team, you know, for all the things you just listed off, um, you know, we really just had this amazing team of people, some who started from day one and carried through such a long and grueling primary season um, to the folks that joined for the general election. And to be able to 
you know, work together as a team and lean on each other and be there for each other while they were all going through, you know, a pandemic themselves, but never really having any opportunity to see each other physically or lean on each other physically um, was just a testament to this team and to the the folks that just work so hard to get us here. So I'm just so grateful to them. Well, it sure was. And I'm eager to get into states and voters and demographics with you, but I want to focus on the team. I mean, you just mentioned, um, you know, a lot of people who are working together, particularly if they came in the last six months or so, never met each other personally. Just talk about, you've managed a lot through your life uh, and career. What, you know, so you're, you managing your senior team, then those senior leaders having their own teams. Like, um, what were some of the challenges that, you know, doing this virtually presented? Was there any silver linings? Just talk a little bit about the people management, because I always remind people, you know, if you watch, you know, television shows or movies about politics, it seems like, you know, people like you, it's all big strategy and hanging out with a candidate. But at the heart, it's like managing people, you know, everything flows from that. So just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, I think the managing people part is so important. And, and frankly, I'm not sure we as a business do a great job in politics. Um, training to to managers. Um, you know, we we often uh, promote people because they are super talented, but we don't give them the training and tools to manage because you know we exist for a short amount of time. So you know, when I came in, my first day in March was the same day we asked everyone to work remotely, and I never had the opportunity to meet with people and wow. and let them look me in the eye and and know <laughs> that I you know we all want to be on a team together. So. I was very conscious of um, the importance of over-communicating and trying to create communication um, on a regular basis because we didn't have the, the, you know, the opportunity to go jump into a meeting and, or walk by someone's office and be like, oh, hey, I meant to ask you this. So you know, we started from that first week, um, all staff meetings every week, um, something that normally you do once a month. Um, and, and it was like our home base for the campaign. We did it on Zoom. Um, you know, by the end, we had thousands and thousands of people on there. You know, we tried to have special guests and make it fun, but it was really kind of a a reminder that we all were in this together. Uh, and I thought that was really important. But we also spent time. I know we did this in eight and twelve, but we had uh, executive management coaches mm-hmm. working with all of our state teams and leadership and our campaign leadership. Something that I, you know, was so valuable to me. Um, when I was an early manager um, and something we really prioritized this time. Um, And then we really tried to do whatever we could to be as transparent to the team as possible uh, and communicate and um, acknowledge that our team was living through the same thing that this this country was living through. And we had to understand um, how hard it was to um, live through George Floyd and and be a staff of color who has had to do that time and again, but then also be on the front lines of the work. And um, we tried to create the space for people to to be able to acknowledge that this was really tough stuff, mm-hmm. that we didn't always have the tools that we needed, especially because we were going through this pandemic. But I think it also helped us have the empathy uh, as a campaign, like the vice president has, and, and I think is one that, oh, excuse me, the president-elect, I'm going to do that like 50 times. <laughs> um, but, you know, his leadership is is one that is is so strong in understanding what people are going through. And I think because the campaign was living through how to communicate differently and support each other differently and survive differently, right? Uh, organizers living with their parents or being like in a studio apartment with other folks they didn't know that well because they didn't expect uh, to ever be at home. 
really allowed us to, to, I think, reach deeper, but also rethink the things that we thought we knew about how to reach people because we were all living through it together. It's so amazing um, to just listen to you, particularly like the day you started, you went all virtual. So you led this campaign and had to get people to trust in you and the mission um, all virtually. It's remarkable. And I, I had one of your field organizers from Michigan on a few weeks ago who was organizing the Ann Arbor area from New York State. You know, it was just heroic work. So uh, I want to come back to some of the tactics of the campaign, but let's go to the map and the voters. So Jen, you were consistent, particularly in the closing weeks of the campaign. It is going to be closer than the polls suggest. And knowing you, I know that wasn't just spin. <laughs> you believed that. But I'm curious now as the dust settled and Arizona just got called officially by the rest of the networks last night. So congratulations on that. You guys are on your way to 306 electoral votes. Uh, huge popular vote win. Um, not a particularly close race at the presidential race. But, you know, you did have some close states. Some you won, some you lost. I'm just curious as you look at it. What happened sort of from a state standpoint exactly as you expected? Where did you guys do a little bit better? Where did Trump surprise you with some of his strength? Um, just as you, uh, I know there's a lot we don't know because we haven't gotten all the data in. We haven't appended it to the voter file. But I'm just curious. Uh, you know, my guess is it probably unfolded exactly as you expected. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious as you look at it now, kind of what jumps out at you uh, as like, yeah, that's exactly what I thought would happen, kind of the margin. And, and where were you surprised? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, first of all, our strategy all along was to get to 270. Um, I know that's kind of an obvious statement, but there were a lot of days uh, that people were, you know, looking for and hoping for. Uh, and I understand um, the thinking behind that, but wishing for a landslide and, right. and 400 electoral votes. And so we really had to stay incredibly disciplined as a campaign to make sure we didn't lose sight of what we thought was our best path to 270. But we also believed that we um, could have realistically um, multiple pathways to 270 that we didn't have to rely on just the blue wall, although we knew that was our easiest and most likely path, but also required us to do real work to get there. We could not take it for granted at all. Um, but that we also felt like we needed to be able to put as much in play as possible because of um, the flexibility we thought was still in the electorate. Um, understanding what happened in 16. Now, not overlearning those lessons, but that the race shifted. We saw some very, you know, late in, in the game. We, we definitely saw some very big fundamental differences between 20 and 16. Um, but we felt like there was more opportunity in play for us to not just lock down the blue wall, but to expand it to look at other opportunities. And I think, especially because you have the president-elect who I think built a pretty um, broad, obviously, um, Biden coalition that brought across the board uh, growth um, that really opened up a lot of doors for us um, pretty early on. And so, you know, I, I think for us, we knew election night was going to uh, have the possibility of being long because we understood the reporting and that the you know Wisconsin's, Michigan's, and Pennsylvania's gonna were gonna be coming in um, later. We knew the swing states of Florida uh, and North Carolina, um, for instance, were gonna be much tighter. We we just knew that all along, and we had only seen them really sit in the margin of error the entire time. We saw that we were ahead. Um, but we also knew that there was, um, you know, there was strength for where Trump was, and we weren't um, surprised by that. Of course, you know, we'd love to have seen uh, him <laughs> lose by more. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we weren't surprised 
by the tightness of Florida. Um, we weren't surprised by um, Miami-Dade. I know a lot of people were, um, but we knew um, our numbers uh, in particular with the Cuban-American community um, You know, was a place where Trump had done work for a long time. Um, and also, uh, we were susceptible to a lot of misinformation um, that you know we were really aggressive on, I think more aggressive than than 16, but uh, was a little bit tougher train for us. Um, you know, I had been saying from the beginning that I was bullish on Arizona, uh, and thank God today yeah, <laughs> Arizona right. is is uh, finally in the books. But we knew that we were going to continue to close pretty tightly there. Um, obviously, Arizona, a different state because it's you know 80 plus percent mail in ballot there, as historically has been the case. Um, but we'll probably end up about plus. 7,000 votes or so. So that got a little tighter than what we had anticipated um, coming into election day, but we still expected to have it. You know, and I think the other big state um, that really came on strong, uh, one of the, the main states that I would say I, we saw some big movement in that last month was Georgia. Um, you know, and, and Georgia, you know, you and I have talked about Georgia for so long. Um, I, I have always been a bit of a Georgia skeptic in part because, um, you know, I think it's a really tough state. Uh, and we saw it as a real path. We had it on our expansion path, but we saw a positive movement. We saw real opportunity uh, on the early vote. We saw heavy uh, in-person. Um, we saw turnout really getting beyond even what we had expected, which was pretty high turnout across the country as well. Uh, and we saw real opportunity for growth, even as we closed it out. It's why we said President Obama there um, on the money before the election. And that was not initially in our plan. Uh, you saw him go to some of our other states. So I think that was a big mover. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a hand recount right now, but we're up 14,000 votes and change, and we will end up uh, winning that state. Um, but that one, I think, has honestly, as you look to 2024, it's, it's going to, those two states in particular has changed the map for what I think we'll be playing in the next presidential. No, I, I want to talk to you about the map going forward um, in a minute. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, you deserve an enormous amount of credit for um, staying focused on 270 and not trying to chase your 400th electoral vote. I know you got a lot of criticism for that, but that was smart. But you were also open uh, to, it, you know, it looks like you really invested more in Georgia by the end than you were planning to, both money, but also you had the vice president, you know, Joe Biden down there, Kamala Harris, as you mentioned, I remember getting a call from Obama and the team saying they want us to go to Georgia. I'm like, well, Gen Z, something there, you should go to Georgia. Like, uh, it's it, that's exciting. And so um, I'm curious, you know, as I look at, um, you know, the one thing you and I, um, you know, have talked about uh, over the months um, was just, you know, the belief that Trump would drive huge turnout. And that's one thing. Polls are not great at capturing what's going to happen on turnout. And he did that. Now, you guys were able to do what you needed to do. Uh, and then, you know, obviously uh, add to your margins in some blue collar and suburban areas. One thing I'm curious as you look at it, the Trump events the last couple of weeks. I was convinced they were hurting him because the images were like the COVID's on the rise. He's out there making fun of the pandemic. No one's wearing masks. Like it's got to be hurting him. But then you look at, you know, the turnout. And for the most part, he was going to smaller communities or at least places where the coverage would really reach in. And it probably did help him on turnout. I'm just curious if you have any, maybe too early to know, but kind of any evaluation of that. Because I think I might have been really wrong about what was happening out there. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's more to understand stand there, certainly. Uh, you know, all along, Trump's strategy had been to the base. I mean, that right. was clear from everything he said and did. Um, I, too, though, believed, both from polling, but also just from being practical, um, that those rallies would be harmful to him 
because people were getting COVID right. um, and they, they were getting them from those events. And, you know, the stories kept mounting. Now, obviously, that there's a bit of a hindsight in that. So maybe the depth of connection wasn't as clear to voters. Um, but there is no doubt that he created energy and excitement. He had people around him. Um, you know, he sort of went to his one note of what he would do and what he would say and um, get people riled up. And I think that um, that clearly was their main strategy, right? They didn't have the money to go up on TV they, at the level that we would have expected. They were not playing the states um, as broadly as you would expect an incumbent president. And so it is clear that they used his travel uh, as frankly, the tip of the spear for their entire strategy. And look, I think, you know, um, people saw other people there. You see energy and excitement. That's always been a big part of uh, closing uh, campaigns. It's one of the harder parts of, of doing this in a pandemic where we just couldn't do that. We refused to do that. Right. And so, you know, the tens of thousands of people that the president-elect would have gotten in events um, you know, just weren't on the table available to us. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it is definitely clear that he was able to rally his base and, and beyond uh, in, you know, go deeper in some of these places that he had to begin with. I think the difference, of course, is that we went bigger in our areas and then we cut in so significantly into margins kind of across the board um, that really prevented him from being able to go beyond that base and capture a whole new category of people that he'd persuaded. He just went deeper into his own pool. And there's no doubt that those rallies uh, had an impact in, in that. Well, what's interesting, I think both, I think both of your approaches work for you, right? Uh, you know, Joe Biden's approach of following the uh, medical experts, being careful, not putting anybody at risk, that really helped both with base and persuadable voters. And this is a tragic statement to say, but kind of Trump being reckless helped him. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So let's talk about Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, certainly for you. And you were keen on that since the very beginning, as you said, to some extent, North Carolina and Florida. Then you added Georgia. Like you're basically running, you know, the equivalent of governor's races in those states. But let's like just to educate people, let's think about Pennsylvania. You guys were there for Pennsylvania was kind of like what 12 Ohio was to us back in 12. Right. You're just there all the time. <laughs> you know, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, surrogates. You got tons of staff. Um just uh, tell our listeners, you know, as a campaign manager, kind of what it's like to, to okay, here's our win number in Pennsylvania. Here's what Trump's doing. Here's what we have to do. Here's we see opportunities. Just kind of um, reveal a little bit about the, the strategy and tactics that go into winning a state, which it's very clear, Jen, you believed that that was, they were all important. They're like children. You know, you don't have favorites, <laughs> but that was the one you had to win. Uh, and it was clear from everything you did that you realized that it was closer than some of the polls. Because I remember people saying, 
uh, and I think I comment on this, people are like, I can't believe Pennsylvania is down to four or five points. It's like, guys, it's Pennsylvania. Like, we're probably not going to win it by four or five points. It's going to be close, okay? And 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 clearly you knew that. And you treated it like, um, you like running for governor of Pennsylvania, you knew it was going to be super close. But talk a little bit, just use Pennsylvania as an example, if you could, about what goes into winning a battleground state. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Pennsylvania was the most um, important state, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and it, you really could see that if you paid attention to where we were going and then how we closed out the race. Um, and we were very conscious that we had a unique opportunity in Pennsylvania, but we also um, knew that we had to go earn it, right? The, you know, Joe Biden is, is as much of Delaware as he is of Pennsylvania. But what we realized early on was that people knew about the president-elect um, but they didn't have a depth of um, knowledge about him leading through the recovery and mm-hmm. um, the type of leadership and and the resilience that he had personally had um, you know faced in his own life and and bounced back from, which really I think articulated a lot of what the country was going through. So we knew pretty early on we had work to do to go make our case, um, and that we thought Pennsylvania would have outsized importance. Um, and it was not a foregone conclusion that it was going to be, um, you know, uh, us running away from it. And in fact, of the blue wall states, Pennsylvania um, was, our data showed it behind um, the other two. And so we really, uh, as, as Mitch Stewart said in one of the final weeks as, as we were huddling, um, that we had to build a moat around Pennsylvania. Um, and we really tried to do that. Uh, we did that in particular with the programming and the staff. We obviously did that with travel. And frankly, uh, it was a little bit more convenient for us. We didn't have to get in a plane and getting in planes was tough during COVID. Um, and so, uh, you know, that made it a little bit better for us, but we weren't willing to just do the things that people would typically do. Just go to Philly, just go to, um, you know, Pittsburgh. We knew we had it to increase our margin in these other counties and northeastern PA, uh, the the president elect is very proud that we won all the precincts. <laughs> <in Scranton>. um, <laughs> and we, you know, we worked for that. Um, but you know, we he went to Erie, uh, a place that Trump had won that we um, have won back uh, by small margins. And so we knew it was actually going to be uh, much tighter. We knew it was going to be smaller margins. We were we were focused. Not you know, we looked at how we ended it in eight and twelve and sixteen. Um, and we weren't going to just do a uh, Philly play, although we did with Senator, with now Vice President-elect Harris um, and John Legend and had this great big blowout event. But at the same time, we had the president-elect in Western PA um, with Lady Gaga doing something similar. And we had all four of our principal candidates spend the Monday before the election in Pennsylvania, um, which you know is a pretty unusual um, model, but was really to reflect what we felt like we needed to do to just push every last vote possible and to ensure that basically every corner of that state knew how hard we were working to earn their support. No, it was brilliant. I mean, I hope people study what you did in Pennsylvania for a long time because it's a model about what it takes to win a battleground state that you have at the top of your tipping point list. And what's interesting, Jen, when you look at the data that's come in so far, uh, so I'm not talking about exits, right, but but actual results. Um, you know, Pennsylvania is a good example where, uh, you know, Philly turned out what's going to be about what it was in 16, um, maybe maybe a little higher. Um, but uh, so, and listen, I always talk like there's this, I think, a really unhelpful debate about 
you know, to win states or districts that are tough? Is it base? Is it persuasion? Like, you needed them all. You know, by definition, you need to eat into your opponent's margin a little bit. You need to win as many persuadable voters. You know, Joe Biden won, I think, the moderate vote almost two to one, um, which was such an important reason he won. And you need to drive up turnout in your base, and you need the activism and enthusiasm to, to do all that. So we need everybody under the tent. But you look at Pennsylvania, you mentioned um, Erie swung to Trump, Biden got it back. Uh, Biden cut down margins in places like Luzerne, did really well in counties like Northampton. Obviously, all the counties outside of, of Pennsylvania, the Montgomery's and the Delaware's, but also, also the Bucks. So to me, you look at Pennsylvania, and that was the promise of the Biden candidacy. Now, Trump hold, held on to his rural margins for the most part, and he actually increased turnout. And, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute, what that means going forward. But you look at that map in Pennsylvania, and Joe Biden did what he always said he would do, which is he'd be able to, you know, win back some of those Obama-Trump voters, uh, you know, do uh, better and be more competitive in blue-collar counties and, you know, blow out the suburban margins. And that's what you guys were able to do. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. And, and I think that that takes... Um, you know, a, a good strategy. It takes being mindful of the fact that, you know, we were all looking at public polling that was just, you know, time and again, overstating what our numbers were there. We knew that they weren't, um, you know, we weren't going to run away with it. Um, but it also meant that from the beginning of the general election, we made no assumptions about just support. We called it mobsuasion, which is kind of a ridiculous thing, but the combination <laughs> of mobilization yeah. and persuasion that there was not like a false choice that we had one group of voters that we just had to worry about as our GOTV targets. We actually had to go earn the vote, make the case, um, and do it in a very clear way. Uh, and we also had some of the tactics, and I know we'll get to that, that weren't on the table in the same way they were before, which just required us to really kind of think differently about how we reach folks. Um, and, and to do it in a um, you know, you always want to go super deep in areas, but we also had to go incredibly wide across the whole state in order to come up with the margins and to prevent against some kind of turnout like we saw. Um, and so I think you saw that in, in the programming we did, but also in the way we tried to reach people and our belief that COVID was the driver of so much of the vote this time uh, and reaching people um, you know, through the lens of the economy, through the lens of what's happening um, in their states and their communities. And that was tough. Uh, in places like Pennsylvania, where, you know, a lot of the state, I think, probably like everyone else in the country was struggling with how to handle COVID and what what are the state guidelines, which were a little bit tighter in that state than in other places. So we really had to kind of juggle a number of elements, some of which were in our control, some of which not, but really through the lens of going out there and finding a way to make our direct case and not relying on any assumptions about what turnout margins we could get to versus what he would get to. Well, let's talk, you know, in terms of what he got to, um, just to underscore uh, what a remarkable victory this was that you led. You know, I look at what Trump did basically in every battleground state as what George Bush did in 04 in Ohio against Kerry, right? Where Kerry put up hundreds of thousands of more votes than Gore did and still lost because Bush found and registered and turned out Every single center-right, right conservative in the state. You know, look at Wisconsin. You know, Trump wins it by a million four hundred thousand votes in sixteen, gets a million six hundred thousand votes, which in Wisconsin is a huge increase. Yet you guys were able to get. I, I just want people to understand, and we'll see, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Jen. Like, is this unique to Trump? Is this surge of Republican turnout going to be something we see going forward? But the degree of difficulty here you guys had to deal with was extraordinary. Now, particularly given some of the tactical challenge, we talked. 
about earlier some of the challenges uh, of managing people in a pandemic. Uh, talk about, you know, the ground game. So you had organizers all over these battleground states um, doing mostly virtual organizing, relational organizing. You did some canvassing at the end. Let's, you know, but but clearly, you know, to in a presidential campaign or any campaign, could be state legislature, you want every tool available to you, right? And and your toolbox was not full. You you tried to um you know, I think in, in, in many ways you were able to overcome the lack of physical in-person organizing. But talk about some of the challenges that pre- that presented. Yeah, totally. I mean, so first of all, you know, at the end of the day, we did execute in-person. Um, this was not, you know, the answer was not a digital-only strategy. But, um, you know, we obviously couldn't do it in the same way that we always had. And we had to really... Um, break everything down and determine what was most important and then figure out how to build it back up again in a COVID reality where people could be safe. And one of the things that I think was often lost when people were talking about tactics and, you know, uh, are we going to do this stuff in person or not is that it was just like our decision as a campaign. I mean, it was our volunteers and our, and the voters and their comfort levels and how do we create environments where people could do this in a safe way that could be trained enough, um, but allowed for us to understand it had to look differently, not just state by state, but within communities in states based on the timing and the ebbs and flows during the campaign of where COVID was. Um, and that really kind of challenged us to, we always say we run customized approaches. This isn't a national campaign, but uh, we truly had to execute on that from a, um, a state by state and a county by county level. You know, what we honed in on and what was so important um, to me was not measuring the volume of our activity, but the quality of our engagement. And I think that that's something that really is just um, fundamental to how we need to move forward, which is, you know, it is great. Yes, there is a value in trying to reach someone, but there is a a much higher value in actually reaching someone. And so in the very early days of um, the spring, when we were in the the first throes of, of COVID, we were reaching people at that point just to check in on them, not even having a political discussion with this idea that we would start building a foundation to kind of show up for folks by having some engagement, but not not have it be through the lens of, are you with us or not? What do you think about the race? Are you going to vote for us? Will you go volunteer? And then we kind of expanded that out and we said, okay, how can we reach people? Contact rates were far better through phones and texting. So we really honed in on the, the conversation itself. Um, and we really honed in on what you and I have always believed, which is um, relational organizing is so critical, especially in a time of pandemic when um, people are kind of consolidating their activities to the, the places that they have to go to, the people that they know, and they're, they're losing some of the broader engagement. So how do we reflect that in our organizing? We, we stood up in, in September our door-to-door program and our lit drops. We stopped having, though, campaign offices. We had supply depot places where you drive in, you get lit, um, you get your walk map, you get a training virtually, um, and you go out and execute on that. Um, so the, the notes that we would leave uh, on lit drops were really pretty important to say, you know, this isn't a piece of mail. This is someone that did show up at your house and my name's Jen and here's why I'm supporting Joe Biden. So those kind of touches we felt like were very important. Um, and then we also tried to spend a lot of time reaching people we couldn't reach on the phone or people we couldn't reach at their homes. Um, we did a lot of uh, online programs, click to messenger programs that 
simulated that engagement online, um, stuff that I'm really proud of and allowed us to reach, you know, hundreds of thousands of voters that we couldn't in any other way. Um, and then we wanted to make sure that whatever we were doing from an organizing and tactics standpoint, we had the umbrella overhang of an incredibly customized uh, advertising program um, that amplified our ability to reach people. Of course, you have the traditional stuff, um, you know, heavily digital, heavily um, uh, TV, but also trying to look for those high impact placements, um, trying to ensure that we were customizing our, our advertising and our content, um, both created by the communities that we were trying to go reach. Um, everything from the stuff we did with Animal Crossing and, you know, uh, versus to try it with, with Senator Harris to um, reach audience that are not traditionally political, thinking about, you know, advertising to, to gamers and, um, you know, showing up with multi-dialect um, uh, Spanish language in, in Florida, for instance. So, you know, a lot of that we kind of tend to use over and over again. I think they took far more importance for us uh, because we were trying to really break through and reach people in a way that connected and that required us to, to facilitate some quality engagement that we wouldn't be able to do in the same ways we typically would with multiple touch points in person over the campaign. And even though we did end up doing um, you know, massive scale. I think we had just in that last um, weekend alone, like 5 million conversations. You know, we had 500,000 volunteers out the last couple of days. So we did get to a place over the fall where I think we, we really did tap into the traditional stuff that we did, but we really had to rethink it and build it back up and, and determine what was most important for us uh, in order to have that reach because we weren't willing to do to just ignore the fact that we were in a pandemic when we were trying to do some of this stuff. Well, it just makes my head spin. I mean, you, you know, you basically built a startup, you know, a presidential campaign is a startup, except it ramps up much more quickly than one in the private sector in and out of business quickly. But then you had to like completely undergo change management, <laughs> you know, about how you run a campaign, how you reach people. It's, it's just remarkable. I'm curious, Jen, not just about, you know, the tactics, but how you were able to get everybody to buy in to a different way of organizing. And ultimately, then we are going to start doing more in person. It was just um, so volatile. And again, I think a, a great example of your leadership. So one of the things that's challenging uh, in a presidential campaign is when you announce your running mate. Now you have another principal. They've got to build a team. You've got, uh, you know, two schedules and, you know, different sets of interviews. And so for all the benefits a running mate brings you, it can also be challenging. It looks, at least from the outside, that um, you're basically, it was seamless, the integration of Kamala Harris and her team. Talk a little bit about how that went and the value she brought to you during the campaign. Yeah, you know, um, I remember you and I talking about what it means to go from one principal to two and how to think about that. And you know, it is made easy when you have uh, a great choice and you have a, a great um, ticket and, and partnership that was clear between the two of them from the beginning. And I think that that just set the tone for the whole campaign, not to mention, and, you know, there will be days ahead to continue to focus on this, but the history making nature of, of the vice president elect's um, tenure on this ticket is, is just so profound uh, and is, is, 
almost lost in a little bit um, because of how long this race has played out and everything that's going on with Trump and what he's not doing. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think that that is uh, really something that um, was so important to the president-elect from the beginning um, and so important to find this partner um, and a partner that, um, you know, he always said would be the last person with him to make a decision. And it was clear, um, you know, from the beginning that that was, um, that was Senator Harris. And so, um, you know, we really took our cues from that. At the same time, we did have, as you said, you know, how do you, you know, you, as you know, you're standing up a team and you're putting together a program in place for whomever that nominee is, not really knowing who that will be until the last minute. Um, and then flowing into understanding that, again, some of the basic things that we would be doing would need to look differently. Um, we were able to do our announcement in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. So we had a little bit of time to kind of merge the teams and spend um, some uh, social distance appropriate um, time together uh, under masks. But, <laughs> um, you know, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I think that we worked very hard to just be very clear about what our plan and strategy was. And then, you know, the vice president elect was just such an incredible asset to the campaign um, you know, really uh, on all those big moments, but also in all the small moments and having, you know, the benefit of having a ticket is just the, the coverage um, that you're able to, to have across um, the country to reach more voters. Um, and, and we really saw that play out. And, and one of the things that obviously for us, because we didn't travel at the same clip that we would in a non-COVID environment where, you know, we'd be going to maybe three states in a day and doing that day in and day out. And so you're going back two, three, four times to these markets. We actually didn't have that opportunity. So we maybe had one or two hits over the entire fall in a market. And we had to make sure that we had maximum impact there, um, that we were really going as deep as possible with local interviews to um, you know, uh, remarks and speaking to the issues that care there. But also, as we talked about earlier, not being able to reach from a volume standpoint, the people there physically. So having um, the Senator out there and, and really being able to reach into these communities and, um, you know, I think reflect back um, to women, to women of color, to young people, uh, just an excitement about uh, the historic nature of, um, of her um, role here was really important to us, was such an important mobilizing element um, but also made, um, you know, at the end of the day, really felt seamless, honestly, because of the relationship and the strength of that relationship from the beginning between um, the president-elect and the vice president-elect. Well, that bodes well for what's to come next, which um, I want to um, talk about that for a minute. So from your vantage point, you've now seen, uh, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris up close. Uh, you know, a campaign is not the White House, but it's still a pressure situation. I think they both had the added burden of not just trying to win the campaign, but also model good leadership and good personal decisions around the pandemic. Just talk about, and, and I think that Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris will enter uh, a situation that more challenging than Barack Obama did back in, in 2009. You probably have to go all the way back to FDR. So, and they're up to it, yeah, clearly. But I'm just, you know, you had a unique vantage point to watch them. Talk a little bit about what you think they're going to bring to these positions that should give us all, you know, as much confidence as we can, given the challenges they're going to inherit. Well, there's no doubt. Um, and frankly, um, you know, I think we as a party were blessed to have such tremendous candidates running in the primary, but I couldn't imagine 
you know, a, a better ticket or the, the, the absolute right leaders for this moment and what we're facing. And, you know, certainly with the president elect, um, there's nobody who's more equipped to understand how to lead through a crisis, having done it before um, and doing it in a way that is very tangible and clear, um, you know, not in the abstract, but in the reality of what people are going through. I mean, I often felt like in the campaign that um, the president elect had to speak with the voice of a president while he was running for president, because that voice was gone with Donald Trump. Um, when it was addressing COVID in the early days, when we crossed, uh, you know, the awful, tragic milestone of 100,000 people um, uh, dead from COVID, it, it wasn't Trump ever speaking uh, to heal or unify the country. It was always um, the the vice president. And so, you know, I think you can take a lot from that leadership and the, the focus that both the president-elect and the vice president-elect have had um, on um, what's at stake, on staying focused, not just on the rhetoric of a campaign, um, but the solutions. And, you know, you, you heard him speak in particular, um, you know, I think it was like a week before the election about what he would do even during transition to stay focused on COVID, to remind people that there is a path forward, um, to, be, to be hopeful, right? We're all going into this more incredibly difficult time um, with the winter and what we're seeing with these astronomical numbers. Um, but that, you know, he didn't even have to wait that there was a path that people could be hopeful for that it's going to take some time, but we can get there. And I, I think really, honestly, that's what you're going to see, uh, in their partnership together, um, and in a, a trust in each other to carry forth on all of these key issues, because as the president elect said, often, this is not a one crisis situation. We have multiple crises that we are facing and it's going to require laser focus across the board. Uh, and I think that's where the partnership's going to grow. So I really do believe, um, you know, in the leadership that we saw in the campaign really reflects that kind of leadership that I think that the two of them will continue to, to carry forward. And, and if you just look at the tremendous responses of world leaders uh, to the conversations that are being had now, just a sense of hopefulness and gratefulness that uh, America can return to that important role that it has always carried in the world. I think that's going to really allow this country to turn the corner quickly once they take office. You know, the reaction across the world has been so striking um, and so uh, uplifting. You know, they, they really want us to be back. No, I mean, listen, they are, you know, when, when they, what's interesting to me, Jen, is like, so last Saturday, that amazing event in Wilmington, first of all, when Kamala Harris came out, the history just struck you. Then Joe Biden comes out and it was so exciting. But for me, the most, you know, just the, the, the idea of seeing them in the building, in the Oval Office, in the Situation Room, on Marine One, <laughs> and Donald Trump never being in those precincts again is, is so exciting because they are going to be handed kind of a proverbial tray of shit sandwiches when they enter. Uh, but I think, you know, these two people are as suited as anybody's ever been uh, to handle them. Uh, and so, but that's what gets me excited is to see them, you know, the first time there's a meeting in the Situation Room, there's Joe Biden at the head of the table, right? Uh, you know, meetings with congressional leaders, and it's the two of them. And it's just going to return not just to normalcy, but it, it, it gives you hope because um, it's people who are problem solvers uh, who are going to really try and uh, solve problems for the entire country, not pit us against each other. And actually, as much as his rhetoric, I think, has been a soothing bomb and her rhetoric has been, it's going to be the actual day-to-day -day execution of the presidency that reminds people uh, what we once had and we can have again.
So, Jen, uh, on the Electoral College, uh, it's always important to remind people it is not a static thing. States move in and out. Some are competitive, then they're not. Some are red, then they're not. Some are blue, then they're not. I think it's fair to say that there's, you know more now about the states of our country from a political standpoint and the Electoral College than anyone alive. So you are the preeminent expert. And I'd just be curious, um, not, you know, not so much with like a Biden-Harris hat on, but just as someone who now knows this better than anyone in the world. You know, when you think about the next, not just four years, but four, eight, 12 years, kind of where should Democrats be concerned? Where are opportunities? You mentioned um, Arizona and Georgia. Hopefully they become the new North Carolina and, I mean, sorry, the new Colorado and Virginia that will take a while. Kind of just, and, and what's important to me is what should flow from your assessment is then what do we need to do to maximize where we have opportunities and where we can work on our challenges, right? Year-round organizing, year-round investment. What's clear to me is money shouldn't be an issue. There's enough people out there uh, that with a good plan in Georgia, a good plan in Arizona, a good plan in Texas will fund it. Then we need people to do the work. But just tell us kind of where you see things going and what we need to do to maximize our position. Yeah, you know, I, I've thought about this a bit and obviously... <laughs> We'll think about it more. But I, you know what? Look, I, for the last 20 years, I think generally speaking, the map has been similar with a couple of states, as you, know, as you mentioned, Virginia and Colorado coming on. And those, those show no signs of um, dimming in their support for Democrats. In fact, um, you know, they were two of our strongest protect states um, and, and just reinforced the strength that, that Democrats have uh, in those two states. But, you know, it does feel to me like we are headed to um, uh, a map in 2024 and beyond that is very different than the one we've been traveling on uh, over the course of the last several presidentials. You know, and I, I think that's just, uh, I think that's hopeful. Um, I think that doesn't mean that other states aren't as important. Obviously, we played um, in Iowa and Ohio and really tried to push um, and saw some opportunity there. Um, we weren't able to get it over the finish line. But I do think when you're looking at Georgia, when you're looking at Texas, um, there is a real opportunity when you take a look at the shifting of the electorate overall, young people, um, the strength of, um, you know, uh, the younger generations are, are just continuing to grow both in size and scope, but also, um, you know, getting politically active. I think that uh, the president-elect and vice president-elect were able to really turn on some strong youth um, support and, and growth. And we're going to continue to see that as well as the demographic changes that I think really require us to make sure we do have nimbleness when it comes to these states. And, you know, I said earlier, I had always been a bit of a Georgia skeptic because starting in 08, we came, we tried it, we pushed for it. And we, we always, um, you know, sort of had to um, close it off as a pathway towards the end because the numbers weren't there. Um, I think you still have to be smart and strategic and, and number based as you think through this because yes, the money's there, but it does require us to make sure that we're putting our finger on the scale about, you know, how we target and how we think through that. But we can't um, close pathways without really trying to push and explore them. And I do think um, I had the, the luxury of working for Stacey Abrams um, in 18, I think there is, there is no mistake that that energy, that, that what happened in that race, both in her not getting over the threshold, but also um, what Kemp did to try to prevent people from participating had real impact on mm -hmm. what happened uh, in 2020. And that's organizational, it's leadership, it is maintaining that support. You know, I'd argue that for Florida too, and, and maybe Florida is 
uh, going to move to be more of a, a relic of the past. Although, you know, knowing Florida the way I do, it always finds its way to try to be the center of presidential politics. But it requires tending to. It requires showing up for voters uh, on and on. Um, and that's really tough in these big states. And frankly, Florida doesn't get that kind of treatment on a regular basis that we have seen in other places. Right. So, you know, I, I think that there is um, real excitement when you look at Texas, um, you know, Tarrant County, um, just the kind of growth and support, obviously what Beto was able to do uh, in 18, but it's going to take continuing to push. And also, and I think this is fundamental, making no assumptions about types of voters that are just going to be with us. You know, I think the Latino vote is a place where there was real strength for the, the president-elect in a number of places, but also a number of places where, like Cuban-Americans in Florida, Trump made real inroads, where we're learning um, about um, parts of Texas where uh, the president-elect was very strong, other places we didn't do as well. Um, it's at our peril to just think of these groups as monoliths without really understanding the differences and, and speaking to those differences. That's always from a electoral college map standpoint, treating these states uniquely, but we've got to go even deeper and do that at the county level and community level um, and doing it in an ongoing way so that politics, um, like we have to repair what Donald Trump has done, but it didn't start with Donald Trump kind of creating this sense that government is, is not good or politics is bad. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to remind people the good of being participant in this process, not just in voting, but in using your voice. And I think that that is the, the path forward, but we've got to go make the case and then empower people to believe that they have a voice in all of this, that it isn't for somebody else. And it can start at a local level with whether you're a volunteer or you want to run for office or you just want to learn more, that that has so much value. And we as a political class have to do more to make it easier for people to show up for themselves in this process and see themselves in this process. That's brilliant advice. And listen, my view is whether it's, you know, 24, 28, um, if the year-round organizing isn't happening along the border or in Miami-Dade, um, you know, you should think twice about contesting it, right? Because if that work doesn't get done, I am curious, and listen, I think so much of the media coverage of politics focuses on Democratic weaknesses in the electorate, and there's plenty of places where we have outsized strength, um, suburban areas, there were, you know, close and exurban areas where Joe Biden did extremely well. But do you think that, um, you know, what we saw in Miami-Dade along the border in Texas, uh, where, to, to, to your point, there was, um, you know, strong uh, Hispanic support for the vice president in states like Arizona and Nevada. But we also saw in some rural African-American um, counties where there's a heavy population, like in the Carolinas, Trump did pretty well as well. I mean, is this unique to Trump? How much of it is about rural and non-college educated, um, uh, you know, black and Hispanic voters? I'm just curious. And, and, and if we just don't know, that's fine. But I'm just curious if you have a sense of that. I think it is hard to overstate the uniqueness of Donald Trump. I mean, I think he exacerbated foundations that have been created by, um, you know, Republican administrations previously and candidates. Um, and, and it's hard to know, right? Like I'd always thought that in this election cycle, if we had a more traditional candidate running a more traditional campaign, and we saw them try to get more traditional towards the end with, you know, advertising and speaking on the economy and 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 so forth, um, but that that was always just generally overturned by the the his voice out there. But you know, my my gut was, if we had a more traditional campaign, we were up against, um, it might be more challenging, and it would be more similar to how we'd experienced campaigns previously. 
But obviously, because of Trump and because of the way he communicated, he was able to create this turnout with his base at a level that um, I'm not sure a more traditional campaign would. It certainly wouldn't be authentic to him. And I think that's probably underneath the surface of this, what we always have known, which is authentic candidates, candidates that both lead and run um, and communicate and campaign honestly to who they are, are always stronger at the end of the day, because people can see that and feel that. Um, you know, I, I think that you will have uh, some real question coming out of this, what happens next. Obviously, you know, uh, he's talking about running in 2024. I can't even, you know, <laughs> and I won't even think about that now. Um, but it, it does feel to me um, a real challenge for the Republican Party to determine what their next step is. Um, there is no doubt that Joe Biden um, built a coalition that also included moderate Republicans yeah. and included suburban women and included, um, you know, cutting off margins, as you were saying, in exurban communities, places that we had not been as successful uh, previously. And that is that is certainly because it was Joe Biden uh, and his leadership in particular, but it was also because it was not Donald Trump uh, and that we got that support. So I think they're going to have a pretty heavy reckoning uh, to navigate through. Um, I, I would be um, hard pressed to believe that his voice uh, and, and um, support doesn't continue in some way, shape or, or form moving forward. What that actually means for uh, more moderate voters, suburban voters, suburban women uh, is a real question, I think, on whether um, that type of, uh, of politics is politics that um, will garner new support uh, that, you know, we obviously saw he couldn't do this time. Right. Well, I think your general point you talked about earlier with mob-suasion. Mob what was the term you used? I never heard it before. <laughs> Mo yeah, mob-suasion. <laughs> mob-suasion. But also just now, I mean, we can't assume anyone's with us. Like, you know, we've got to treat every group, um, you know, first as somebody we want to motivate and persuade. Uh, in some cases, that's simply to vote for us. In some cases, it's to, to organize. But also understand that, you know, there's some people probably off the table to us. But, you know, to your point, you guys were able to claw some gains in some places with moderate Republicans and some blue-collar and exurban voters that people thought might be gone from us. So I just think, and that's got to be your year-round effort. Uh, and I know you'll be supplying a lot of your mind share to groups thinking about that uh, in, in, the, in the days to come. So, Jen, you've been generous with your time. Last question for you. You led this campaign in a pandemic uh, against um, probably the most complicated person to run against in Donald Trump. You did it all with three kids under eight, uh, your oldest two having been born right after 2012, the last time you were deep in a presidential race. Just what was that like? Um, I know you were home more than you <laughs> thought, right? So, but, but sometimes that's harder, right? Because they're downstairs and you can't see them. I'm just curious. Uh, and obviously you have an amazing partner in Patrick who, who made it all easier. But what was that like for you? You know, um, I, I think uh, it's funny. When I started doing politics, you know, I had a lot of people saying, oh, well, if you wanted to have kids, you know, you shouldn't do campaigns. You know, you can't do those things. And I think that was you know, the case for a long time. And so in some ways, I have always felt like it's really important to talk about the fact that I'm a mom. Um, and, you know, look, I, I ascribe to the RBG school of thought where you can have it all, you just can't actually have it all at the same time. <laughs> but I think in some ways, um, you know, uh, having to share the attic with my daughters while they did virtual school, and I was on the campaign, <laughs> um, you know, was was great for them. Uh, and it was good that I did have more opportunity to be with them. You know, my son, uh, who is too, um, you know, has lots of cheers for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, and Barack Obama 
um, who's part of the fun too in our house. So, you know, at the end of the day, it, it was a lot and you give up a ton um, of the parenting and the time and um, the moments that you're missing. Um, but we as a family kind of collectively knew that this was more important um, to, to participate in and, and it takes a family effort to do that. And I am certain that my daughters are better off mm-hmm. um, having seen what their mom did, but also see, you know, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden um, be able to to lead the country forward in a way that, you know, they know enough to know what that Donald Trump is, is, is they would say a bad guy. Um, <laughs> and um, they really feel like they were part of, of helping, um, you know, lead this country uh, forward and in their eight year old minds, um, you know, that that's going to matter a great deal. So I, I feel very fortunate for them to have been part of this, but also grateful to Patrick in particular for helping us navigate all of this stuff. Um, and boy, was it something. For sure. Patrick's got mean tweeting skills as well. Um, <laughs> he, does. he does. Well, listen, we all owe you a debt of gratitude. And, and you know, sometimes I think politics can seem ugly and silly and small, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the campaign you led um, on behalf of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and all your amazing team members throughout the country, you are going to play a large role in saving our democracy, our planet, and our lives. So thank you for that. And, um, you know, you've already gotten 78 million votes. My guess is you'll get over 80 million. So you're setting records all over the place. But more than anything else, you got Joe Biden and Kamala Harris across the finish line so that we don't only just remove Trump, but we can also make uh, try and, you know, do that important work to making our union more perfect. So thank you, Jen. Thank you, Pluff. Thanks, everyone, especially this campaign team. It, they were the ones that, that did this and pulled this off. And um, I will be grateful for them for all my days. Hang in there. Get some rest. (laughs) Will do. 